Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blasting Game, and I am your host. Today, we have Kevin Barheit, who is a YouTube creator and the author of Dear Stephen Michael's Mother. His YouTube channel creates a safe space for survivors of addiction, abandonment, adoption, and child sexual abuse, and to explore the healing process. Abandoned by his mother at birth, Kevin was enveloped in a labyrinth of adoption, addiction, and child sexual abuse. By age 20, a shell of the boy he once was, Kevin succumbed completely to a suicidal lifestyle of drug dealing and prostitution. At 45, after many years of recovery, Kevin began a painful journey to uncover his origins and the hopeful search for his mother. His book, Dear Stephen Michael's Mother, chronicles the unfolding of these stories. The interwoven perspectives offer an unflinching look at the myriad ways life can cloak us in darkness and helplessness, yet still resonate with joy and recovery. Kevin Barheit's life is summed up with these eight words, to be of service to God and others. As YouTube creator, actor, educator, and disability technology evangelist, as a son, husband, father, and friend, he gives of himself with one expectation, that you can only keep what you have by giving it away. If you want to check out Kevin's YouTube channel, uh, go to YouTube and type in Kevin, last name Barheit. It's B-A-R-H. Y-D-T. Again, that's B-A-R-H-Y-D-T. Kevin was such an amazing uh, interview. I mean, wow, what a story. Abandoned at birth, um, the incredible struggle of adoption and um, his eventual entry into addiction and prostitution. Kevin described the perfect example of what happens when we have unresolved trauma. And it's also a commentary on the process of adoption and some of how we've changed that process, which I found to be very, very interesting. Kevin has done deep recovery work and continues to do deep recovery work and is incredibly honest about his story, authentic and cares deeply about helping others in their recovery journey. So I hope you enjoy Kevin's interview as much as I enjoyed doing it. Episode 86. Let's do this. Well, welcome to the podcast. You are absolutely incredible. And in fact, I was, you know, wanted to make sure that I listened to your other podcast to get, you know, more information because there's so much to your story. (laughs) There's so much, you have such an incredible story and there's so much to your story. So it's, it's really it's really incredible. Now, are you clean and sober? 35 years. January 1 will be 35 years. January 1. I love it. I'm January 7. So you really... <laughs> there you go. Not 35 years, um, no. but uh, but but I'll be 15 on the 7th. So. I'm so happy. I'm so happy for you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Likewise. Wow. So you got a really bad 
New Year's Eve, I take it? It's a funny story. I was telling Christina yesterday that I actually was very sick in the end. High school dropout, couldn't spell my last name, but I came up with an idea because all the drugs and alcohol that I was ingesting, uh, I simply couldn't keep up financially with it. I was still, I was working, but I was still stealing and borrowing from my girlfriend and dealing and trying and prostituting myself. And what ended up happening was I decided, I had a really brainstorm actually. I said, I am going to make a New Year's resolution. I'm going to quit drugs and alcohol for one year so I can save enough money so I can buy enough drugs, I can deal drugs and never have to buy them again. Oh man, I just, I that's love I, you. That, that's how I stopped. Now, that was my entrepreneurial idea. Now, yeah, remember, remember, I'm a high school dropout who couldn't spell his last name at that point. I was very I sick. mean, I can barely spell your last name. Let's be real. <laughs> it, it's a Dutch-German spelling, but it shouldn't be that complicated for the guy that's had it. And what ended up happening was, you know, I, I, I really, I couldn't spell the word entrepreneur. I didn't even know the word existed at that point. I was, you know, right. very, very isolated in the world. But that's what started this. And now I did not, I detoxed and it was awful. And I just thought I was sick. I had no idea that any of the symptoms were connected. No, no. But the worst part, the worst part was after the detox and I was just such a physical mess, but I was calming down a little bit after about four or five days. And then I had the emotional mental realization because without the drugs and alcohol, I could see the past. I could see it. And what a past, what a past it is. I, I, I would be remiss if we missed any of it. I do want to start. So you, you were born in New York. That's yes, correct. that's correct. And uh, you, so there were two, so I know that you went to foster care at two months old, but tell me, I heard that mom abandoned you at birth. Is that accurate? Yeah, I was born in New York, but I was made, as I say, made in New Orleans. And that took a long time to find out. I never knew any of that. Um, My biological mother, and this was nothing that I knew until 13 years ago, uh, found out. Uh, She was, of course, a 20-year-old woman who was had an affair with a married man from where she worked. And she, uh, she was not supported by her family. And back in 1962, when I was born, or 61, when she conceived, it's called the Baby Scoop era. And it's part of a big baby, baby scoop that happened during the, basically North America, more than the world, but North America, where women were really uh, just forced to abandon their children, forced to give them up, or just ostracized otherwise. It's the scarlet letter. Yeah. It really is. And so, uh, at, so did she leave you at the hospital? I was given up through Catholic charities. So Catholic charities took me from the hospital. Uh, she did not have anything to do with me. There is a part in the story, which uh, I, I try to be a little bit, not coy, but uh, I'm remiss to kind of give away too many details that are in the book because they're wonderful mystery that I, that I uncovered. But I, I was, uh, she did have the, uh, the, I guess, the gift that she was given to her and then was given to me is um, she baptized me. She gave oh, wow. me the she gave me the name. I don't think she was ever there. I have no evidence of what yeah. transpired. But typically, the baby was born and never given to the mother. Right. So right. I was never quote unquote held by my mother. I was never even seen maybe by my mother, and that was very traditional or typical, I should say. Um, but I think because I was I was uh, placed and I was I was taken into the foster care system and then uh, and placed into the uh, adopted ho- adoptive home. I believe that Catholic Charities made the decision. What do you want to name your child? And uh, that's part of the story, and it's wonderful. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, I love that. Well, you know, we'll we'll take all the all the niceties that 
that can happen, you know? I mean, there's, I think that's a great point of searching for the beauty in, in all things, right? You know, there is beauty in all things, even when they're tremendously trying situations. You did get placed in a good home, which is also uh, unusual, right? I got placed in a loving home. And you know, the word good is so subjective these days, yeah. isn't it? And it loving, always, loving, it always, yes. A, a loving home, a group, you know, I was just talking about it yesterday. I mean, I'm a grandfather three times over. I'm a father four times. And it takes a lot of time and, and maybe wisdom, but certainly thought to really realize that none of us are perfect. And my family was not, they were loving uh, and good. You're right. That That is a pretty healthy word to say they were a, they had a foundation underneath them that was spiritual in nature and that was full of, full of um, hope and, and, and desire to do the best they can. We all fall short terribly sometimes. Absolutely. I mean, I, I like to think of my home as a good home, but it is far from perfect for my children. So I, I use good as, you know, doing the best they can, which is above maybe average. So that, you know, that and, and in the foster system, that is, I'm you know, particularly unusual to come across, at least in stories that I have heard. Sure. And there's, there's, there's pros and cons to the whole foster, uh, foster system, foster care system, as we call it. And the system itself is, uh, has got a lot of faults, uh, incredibly, uh, detrimental to families and children. And I'm not in, in my book, I don't comment on that except through the experiences that I share. And yes, I was in the foster system and then I was adopted by my adoptive family. Um, but I also had other run-ins with the foster care system when I was a teen and they were not. Uh, healthy. Yeah. They were not at all. Not happy. And this, so this family that adopted you, did they have other children? And how old were you when they adopted you? My, both my adoptive parents, they couldn't conceive. They, uh, one day I actually asked my, my, my mother one day, I think it was after my dad passed. And I said, you know, did you guys, did you guys try a lot? And I'm never forget, I don't know why I asked that question. And she said, oh yeah, your father tried. I said, oh. wait, too much, too much information. TMI. And I, TMI, back I, it up. Know, not a picture oh, I want, you know, yeah. and basically, yes, dad was a, uh, he was a wonderful man and uh, strong and uh, virile. He was a baseball guy and a football guy and a, he was in the Navy, World War II, Korean War, but he couldn't conceive and my mother couldn't conceive. And back then there weren't a lot of uh, fertility treatments. I'm sure they would have tried and I think they did. But they adopted me uh, many years after trying as right. much as they could. I love that picture. I don't tell that story often. I love it. You're like, uh, sorry, I asked. Sorry, I asked. <laughs> my dad's gone and my mom's 91. She lives with us. She's downstairs now. She won't hear this, so I don't have to worry too much. Uh, but these are wonderful, fun things that I hold on to. But they couldn't conceive. And they were in their 30s when they finally uh, received me. And uh, unfortunately, my dad's health wasn't good. They didn't know that then. But as the years went by, he became weaker and weaker and had a heart condition. So they they did plan on adopting another child. They never did, and uh, they couldn't conceive. So I was an, I was raised an only child. Right. And and at nine, you had an incident that sounds like it shaped you, which is interesting to me. Interesting to me in that. So many people I know who aren't adopted, and myself included, had very similar um, experiences that that I'll, that I'll let you tell us about as a young child, which had nothing to do with being adopted or any of that, is a very common, prevalent 
problem experience, how it you know that that happens, and I find it so interesting how you have this trauma, you have this you know relatively traumatic start in life, and then you get this great family, and this thing that happens to so many people happens to you, and I wonder what it would have looked like without it, you know, and I, how, how can we, we, we'll never know, but, you know, I wonder how, how much, you know, if you, how much was the adoption, that lack of bonding in the beginning, you know, that, that, and how much was the, you know, these various incidents that have happened along the way, genetic predisposition, like there's so many things that happened in your world and in your life that contributed to how things, you know, ended up. And yeah, so anyway, tell us about that. And, and you know, I just wanted to make that brief comment. That's a wonderful comment. And you're exactly hitting, I guess, all the nails on the head as to why we have these conversations. I think they're so important. And uh, you're right. Uh, it's common. Uh, with women, it's very common to be abused, to be raped, to be um, uh, molested. And, and it's well documented. It's well known. With men, it's estimated to be one in six. One in six young men, young boys will be molested, raped, or otherwise maligned. And that is not well, uh, well reported. And so to understand where I came from and how I got to where I am, you're exactly right. If I was only adopted, if I maybe if that's the only thing that happened to me, then maybe I would have been fine. Maybe we wouldn't even be here right now. Maybe I wouldn't be having this conversation. But there's an interesting understanding of the adoption and the separation, the relinquishment that is pretty well documented now and getting more and more analyzed. And they're getting a lot of more empirical understanding of it. But there's a, an understanding that's called the primal wound. And that primal wound is a separation. And it's something that Everyone looks at the child and says, yeah, but you were adopted into a loving family, so right. it shouldn't make a difference. Right, right. Because, because I'm, a, I'm sorry to be, uh, I just don't want to be too facetious here, but, you know, because I'm a bird and the bird just fell out of the nest and, you know, you just put the bird in yep. another nest and they're happy. Right, right. But there are, there are neurological changes that happen. Absolutely. And they actually don't. And I really want to say this to any birth mothers that happen to be listening. These changes aren't just for the adoptee, they're for the birth mother. Imagine being separated, oh, never I, being I, a... Yeah, you can't imagine. I, I know. can't. I can't. I I, I won't. <laughs> you know, I, I won't. And I know that any mother who one of the things that I know that's so powerful about my addiction one of the one of the ways that I realized how powerful my addiction was is that when the twins were born, and I realized two things. I realized number one that all the mothers on the planet who relinquished or let their children or neglected or whatever it, the circumstances were as a result of their addiction, that that was because that addiction was more powerful than what was already, than, than this primal protective thing that happens when you grow your babies and your ba your baby and um all 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 pregnancies and all children are plural in my life because I have twins. And then the other piece was that I have that. I realized that that's what that was and that I have that, that I have something, I have something that is so powerful that if I engage it could cause me to separate myself from my kids. And I can't as a sober woman and as a mother and as any of those things you're, you're talking about, like I, I won't imagine that, but I know that I have that. And I also know that in situations like you're talking about with your mother where, you know, what were your options? 
you know, what were your options and, and, and people who know that their child will have a better life. There has to be some great, great reason behind that for that to happen. There's a tearing of the flesh, of course, as we say. There's a removal of the flesh of your flesh uh, as a mother and a child. There's also the neurological, just those are, you know, same thing, flesh. They're neurological, physical separations. There's an understanding that there's, of course, then mental, you know, the way the brain develops, uh, the way the central nervous system responds, because there's now a sense of abandonment, which can be then built into every relationship you have and a fear. There's also, from my perspective, and some a spiritual uh, separation, a very um, permanent, un- unnatural separation. Now, all those pieces really, like I said, I'm not saying to anyone that's listening or anyone in the world that every adoptee should feel like this or grapple with this or every birth right, right. mother should mourn. And But that's Agreed. the right word. Well, the right word is mourn because there has to be an understanding that when you are separated, when there's something that breaks like that, there's a grief. There's a grief that can be profound. Now, that grief can be managed, of course, like all grief, but it has to be processed. And if you don't understand that you have grief, if you're just told, if you're told as a a birth mother, if you're told your child will have a better life, it'll be fine. If If you're just supposed to accept that. And as a little child growing up, I always knew I was adopted. And I was told your mother loved you so much that she gave you to us. Right, right, right. And then my parents said to me, and we love you so much that we, we took you. you. Right. Now, put those together, though. The person who gave birth to me loved me and so relinquished me. Now, you're telling me you love me. What will you do? You will uh, relinquish me. Interesting. I didn't, there's a wiring yeah. that happens, and there's a yeah. mis, there's a, it's kind of like a miscalibration during that baby scoop era of the understanding. I'm not saying that's how adoptees speak now or adoption agencies speak now. Some do. Some are learning, and some are doing fairly well. Uh, and we could talk all day about the pros and cons of adoption or f- the foster system. But I think it's that language that really gave me no recourse. It gave me no healthy ability to process the grief. It probably, I would assume, gave my biological mother a very similar uh, understanding of, I hope I've done the right thing, uh, you know, but why did I do this? Why, what, what was wrong with me? Um, so you're right, getting back to that original topic, if that was the only thing that ever right. happened to me, I guess. Maybe. Well, who knows? You know, who knows? Maybe, maybe I would have been a little less likely to have the brokenness and the lifestyle that I had. But you're right. At nine, the first nine years of my life were fairly uneventful. Go to school, you know, holidays, family gatherings. When I was nine, I was in a group called 4-H, and not everyone knows what that is. It's similar to the Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or Cub Scouts, and what it is is 4-H focuses on agriculture and farming and understanding the environment. And I'm sure they're a good group, and I think they still exist now, but back then, we just met a bunch of nine-year-old kids, little boys, and we had a 4-H leader. We met in his family's house, but his parents were never there. Sometimes his sister was. And without going graphic uh, to every every uh, detail, he groomed us. He groomed all of us. And it's called grooming when a pedophile or a perpetrator uh, really stalks their prey, so to speak, and then makes these relationships seem normal, seem natural, seem almost casual, and in the end, seem extremely special and secret. And so I was molested at that young age. And 
again, if maybe I'd only been adopted, or maybe if I'd only been adopted and only been molested. <laughs> right. No, I, I mean this literally because. No, no, no. I know. I, I, I I've seen your, I've seen your, your story. So I, you're well, right. Well, and there are wonderful people in the world that have had different circumstances. Yeah. And what I really try never to do, and I've learned only through trial and error and a lot of error, I'm not going to compete and compare with anyone, right? If if you were only adopted and uh, had a wonderful life and yet you still feel that sense of abandonment and can't, can't you know, it's affecting how you function in life, that's it. That's what I want to talk about, where you are and where you maybe want to go. If you've gone through hell, well, that's the same story to me. It's all the same dialogue. Where are you? Where do you want to go? You know, are you willing to do the footwork? Let's do it together. That's what this community is all about. Well, I will, you know, not not compare in, in the sense of like who's better, but I will say this, like I grew up in a loving family and I was molested when I was five and my life you know, went off the rails and I was not adopted. So, you know, it's if to me, you know, there there are things, one of the things about addiction that I see all over your history is that when you start to abuse drugs and alcohol as your anesthesia, you also engage a lot of perpetrators into your life. You also engage the opportunity for many more traumas to take place. And so when you do that, those compound and, you know, they're building interest. And so that's part of why things get so crazy and so out of control. You know, you see people on the streets or whatever. And what I see is compounding trauma every day that someone is out on the streets, every day that someone is prostituting, that's a compounding trauma. And so you may have started with one and then tried to anesthetize that. But what you did was you created this opportunity, this pathway for all these other ones. And so when you end up, by the time you get to the place where you want to get sober, you're dealing with just this stack of incidences that 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 are are now, you know, weighing in on whether or not you should be using. And so for you, I you know, I have the same experience without the adoption and I know that even that, you know, you you engage those traumas over and over again. There's there's a real sense of and I don't want to run ahead with the story of how we get to the point of what we call a bottom or a end where we finally say, and, and in the end, it, it almost wasn't even a choice of use or don't use. It was just, you know, should I exist? Right, right, right. Using was not a choice. So yeah, it was, that was a, so, and, and you started, well, I, I've, so I wanted to do two things, two questions. The abuse, did you have any sense? So was he doing it to the group? And did you have any thoughts? You were nine, so you were you definitely were old enough to have some thoughts about this. Did you have any thoughts like this isn't normal or gosh, like I'm not interested in this or hey, it's happening to everybody? What were you kind of thinking around this? Right. Now I'm 58 years old now. And in, in retrospect, I remember so many different details. Some of them are brown outs, of course, but I, I, I understand there was an I did notice and the word is notice almost casually that some of the boys didn't engage. Some of the boys maybe moved to the other side of the room while it was happening. But the ones, myself and the ones that were engaged in the abuse, that were abused, I just had no idea it was abuse. 
I had no idea I was being molested. I had zero idea until I was two plus years sober that you even called that molestation. I had two plus years sober before I even knew that when I was 15, I was gang raped. I thought it was just what adults do with children. It was such a skewed existence, but it also really put me in a place where I had to then reconcile what happened with my own existence and how I present myself to the world. And unfortunately, from the time I was nine on, and of course it wasn't that minute, but as things move forward, I realized that my place in the world was as, and I apologize for the bluntness, uh, my place was a piece of meat. I was to be used, I was to be given, taken, and discarded over and over again. And so that's the mention you had of prostitution when I ended up in, in, in the role of a prostitute, when I was on the streets, when I was living like that. There was nothing wrong with that, what I was doing. I saw nothing out of the ordinary with it. Um, of course, the drugs and the alcohol helped me to, to, see, to see that through a scrim of, of being plastered most of the time. But also, deep inside of me, I'm like, nope, this is what you're supposed to be. This is why you were born, to be, to be abandoned, to be abused, and to be used. I had no other purpose. I had no other reason for existing. Wow. Wow. And, and when did alcohol enter the picture for you as a child? Unfortunately, about two years after the abuse happened, my dad also, I, I mentioned earlier, became ill. We didn't know it until he had a heart attack and, you know, was rushed to the hospital. Right around that same time is when I was grappling with some of the manifestations of this. The behavior was changing outwardly. No one knew why, me the least of all. And then the miracle happened in my life. Tony Rotundo, guy that was a couple years older than me, just moved into the neighborhood, said, what are you doing Friday? And I'm 11 years old. And I said, not nothing. And he said, well, you want to hang out? I'm like, yeah. And we went and got two picks, two six packs of, sh of Schlitz beer. And if you know what Schlitz is, it is gosh awful. And the two of us wandered over to the railroad tracks in Rotterdam, New York. Uh, I live in a county, Schenectady County. And I was raised in Rotterdam. And we sat on the railroad tracks. Uh, I sat there with a little bit of an older kid. And so it was cool. And it was a big yeah, deal. Yeah. And I drank six beers. I don't know how I ingested that. I really don't to this day. And that's when I started. And I will tell you, honestly, I don't remember much about that night except, you know, speaking in gibberish, of course. Yes. Ch childish gibberish, but drunk childish gibberish. You know, things about, uh, you know, uh, diarrhea or something like that, making <laughs> bad jokes. It's in, the, it's in the book. It'll be silly when you read it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'll send you a copy. But it was really amazing the next morning. And you'll identify with this. I woke up the next morning with, a, with an 11-year-old hangover, which means, you know, I didn't remember the night before, but I, I, I knew one thing. I knew it, and I remember it to this day. Now I know what I want to do with the rest of my life. It was that crystal clear. And of course, I wasn't an 11-year-old making a philosophical plan for of my course. life. I wasn't setting a five-year goal. I you weren't going to take that to career day? Well, you know, I might I mean, take maybe, it to... maybe, Well, you know, it's funny you say that because I did. I took, you know, later, I, very quickly after that, I got into pills and I decided to bring those to school for my show and tell in the bathroom <laughs> and got arrested. So, you know, I mean, you know, I was, I OD'd by the time I was 12 on my father's, you know, uppers, downers and Valium. And it was, this was the lifestyle that I instantly gravitated towards. There was nothing in that picture that seemed wrong. It was the cure. It was the fix. It was who I was. And of course... How was I supposed to know until much later that it was that primal wound? It was that sense of not belonging. It was that abuse that had happened. And the whole, like you said, compounding traumas skewed things beyond all recognition. And my poor family, 
You ask if I was from a good family. Good people cannot see that happening. Good people, even the best. And I tell you, I have a 91-year-old mother downstairs, and she knows the book just came out, and we talk a lot about it. Yesterday was the drop date. It was amazing. But last week, last week, I'll tell you, Ashley, and I don't tell too many people this, but it's lovely to say, she actually, she knew about the abuse. You know, I've talked to her about it over the years. Yet la- uh, last week was the first time she, just while she's doing her puzzle and I'm standing next to her, she goes, can you tell me, when did that happen again? It was the first time she'd ever asked about it. And I, I took it to talk to her about that abuse in, in kind of three parts, because you know, I'm clean and sober, I can understand what's happening. And she's 91 and grappling. And I realized she was ready to face this just a little bit. She had never really asked me before. Even though she heard me, she had never asked me. And I said to her, first of all, let me explain to you something. It's not your fault and I'm okay. I said, you didn't see it. I said, but now let me tell you, number two, why you didn't see it. Because pedophiles are extraordinarily gifted at hiding their behavior. And so I had to like place that for her. And then number three, I, I explained to her some of what happened without the graphics. But I said, and I could tell she was, she had to grieve that. And she's 91. And right now she's, you know, I, the next day I said to her, and again, these are short, short conversations for long details, but the next day I saw her in the morning because she lives downstairs. We built an apartment for her last year. And I said, how you doing? And she said, I didn't sleep well. I said, how come? And she said, she's kind of looked at me and I said, because of the talk we had. And she said, yeah. And I looked at her and I said, it's okay to lose some sleep over that. And that was the real kind of symbolic, but also very tangible understanding of we can heal. My mother's 91 and she can heal. That's a grief, but she never had the opportunity. You know, we have to grab that. And I don't think at that time people, I mean, even when I was a kid, you know, my mom talks about like now, nowadays, you know, one in six boy, right. We have two little boys, but I think it's one in four girls. And, you know, my husband and I both very much think about these things and, I don't, my mom, when we, when we make comments about it or when we've talked about like, well, we'll have to think about that or whatever it is. My mom's like that, that's not a, she, she, she finds that very strange that we, you know, because for her, that was not how you thought about things. That was, that was such an abnormal way of thinking. Whereas for us, particularly sober a long time and working in mental health, we know what the stats are, you know, it would be insane for us not to think about it. So I think, uh, you know, a lot of it, how do you deal with, you know, this thing that you didn't think was happening, you you didn't think to think of and, and the pain that comes from that as a parent is, is, uh, would be extraordinary. And without the tools, or at least some process or some kind of uh, way to kind of even take a step in that direction, uh, you do what my mother, who's again, uh, you know, she's from a different generation than me or you and maybe even your parents. But, you know, well, that's that's the past. We put it behind us. And, and it's understandable. I mean, she was born in the Depression era. You know, you don't you don't reminisce over the Depression. You you be grateful for what you have. But there's a real I, I take a lot of solace in understanding that the healing, as painful as it was, has been enormously re- rewarding, not just because I've healed and I feel more uh, a sense of belonging in the world. That's, that's really the, the, almost the tinsel on the tree sometimes. But what I realize is the real meat and potatoes, the real solid part of it is I can be of service to, you know, to others now. I mean, you know, I was, uh, we had a nice little thing yesterday when, um, when uh, after the book launched, and it was just a family affair on Zoom, and both my sons, uh, uh, you know, were on the call, and they both said a few words, 
And it was incredible because they really understood all the work I've been doing over these years. But yesterday, they said, not only do we understand it, but because everyone that was on this call were people that I sponsor in, in 12 Steps or people that have sponsored me for 34 years. My sponsor was on the call yesterday. Hi, Richard. He, he listens to these. And it was just absolutely wonderful for that to be so glaringly apparent that it's not about me, you know? It's really not. It's really about, you know, uh, did I wake up this morning, put myself in a sober place and take the first and then second and then third sober step? I'm going to go off track a lot, but it's the difference between compounding spiritual life or compounding trauma, compounding, you know, hundred uh, percent, just incredible. A hundred percent. Absolutely incredible. And congratulations. That's, that's huge. That's absolutely huge. I love that. I love that your kids get to be a part of that too, you know, to, to really be a part of that journey. Cause it's, it's a great example for taking, you know, whatever cards you're dealt and, and putting them to use in, on this planet. And, um, so getting back to your story, your timeline here, I paused, I'm sure many people do was that you, so you, you're adopted by this family out of foster care, but then you end up back in foster care, which is not a, a normal thing to happen, right? And you, you had a PO, hence, you know, which you said the arrest. And the PO said, you know, I, I'm I, my guess is that your parents were like, we don't know what to do. And again, you're right. It's not, I wouldn't say uncommon, but you're right. It's not the the routine so much. You know, a child gets the placed routine. in, right. oh yeah, a child gets placed and you're assuming that they will get the support and, and by necessity, everyone will try to keep that family together. And I'm not saying people didn't try. And there are so many pieces to that puzzle. And I don't even like to call it a puzzle, but it, it really is more like that mystery of like looking back and saying, wait a minute, that, that story I don't understand, but you have to look at those pieces. So I was out of control by that point. I was really out of control. And um, my parents obviously couldn't take care of me, but why couldn't they take care of me? In other words, not, there's not always a why and a how and a when, but dad was very, very ill. Dad never recovered. Now, I don't want to speak out of turn because he's gone now and I love him and we had to heal a lot from, you know, in recovery. It was a lot of hard stuff. But looking back on it, I really understand he was depressed and probably had been depressed even before I, you know, saw him before I was even born. He had I mean, had a he rough... tried so hard for a baby. How could you not? <laughs> right. And he had a rough life, too. Uh, you know, he had he had some abuse and things like that. And, you know, you piece that together and then you understand now here they are in the middle of this life that's supposed to be perfect. Now they've got their beautiful baby boy and dad can't get off the bed. Dad's so ill, he retires at 49 years old and never works again. Mom has to go back to work. Dad is now fully disengaged from his friends and his social life and his work life. Everything gets off kilter, but it's not one thing. It's the compounding things. And it's just those threads that start to really kind of come together. And you show, you show that there, it makes a really weak foundation for any kind of healing. Uh, dad's trying to heal physically. Mom's trying to make sure that his blood pressure doesn't raise so he doesn't have another heart attack. I'm bouncing off the walls, punching holes in the walls and staying out you know, for three days in a row and I'm only 13 years old. And then I'm 14 years old. 
and now I'm, you know, uh, taken out of my home and I'm put into foster care. And the first foster home is they're they're you know they're elderly, but they're both drunks, and so I run away from there. And then I get placed in another foster home, and I run away from that one three times. There was drugs, alcohol, and abuse in that home. And again, I, I, there's no need for me to get really descri- des- descriptive here. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Okay. So this is important. Listen up. I'm going to talk a lot about it. Lion Share Coffee, Lion Share Organic Coffee, 100% of the profits fund recovery. They go to scholarship people for substance abuse treatment who cannot afford it. Lion Share Organic Coffee. The coffee has the roasted date on it. We partnered with Common Room Roasters. They're a very fancy coffee shop. And... This stuff is next level great. Furthermore, you are helping pay for someone to get treatment who cannot afford it. So not only are you getting your caffeine shot, you are giving back. So we have um, subscription prices and then one-time purchase prices. We also have different roasts. So if you're really into your coffee, you can check out the different flavors Again, I'm going to say it, Lion's Share Organic Coffee, 100% of the profits fund recovery, substance abuse treatment for people who cannot afford it. So give the gift of recovery, my friends, the holiday season, Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, whatever it is, you guys, uh, this is a great gift and it's the gift that keeps on giving. So go to lionrock.life backslash shop dash products. So if you just go to lionrock.life, you'll find the coffee. But um, go to lionrock.life, shop. And that is where you can find Lion Share Organic Coffee. Please help us help others. I have a question about that. Why? I would think that drugs, again, this is coming from addict, no experience, having been in foster care. I would think that having the parents be drug addicts or alcoholics, aside from the abusive piece, which I'm not, I'm not diminishing, but that that would be a breeding ground for for using that it, like a reason to stay. Right. But maybe it, maybe not. Obviously. Right. It would have it would have been wonderful if there was they were sharing. Be- well, there there was a lot of pieces to that puzzle, especially in the second home. The first one uh, was simply that the both of them were alcoholics, and the woman became abusive. And it wasn't it wasn't physically, but it was verbally. And and that was my first foster home, right? right and so right, right. I just ran away. Yeah. Uh, I just said, what do you do? You don't come home from school one day uh, because I, I, you know, emotionally didn't feel like this was a good fit for me for some reason. You know, it was even though, but there was no sharing. I mean, this woman was passing out with a bottle of vodka. I didn't right, get any right, of that right, vodka, right? right this right, wasn't, right, right. I, I wasn't being supported in, in a lifestyle that in was... Your, in your, <laughs> I, I was being left alone in my bedroom to get high, but right. I, if you could picture the darkness and the dourness and the the smell of the house and the loneliness and the despair. I mean, I don't want to paint that picture as if it was awful. And I mean, I, I could have survived there, I'm sure. But it was obvious she was verbally abusive. And her husband, uh, Sam, was also, of course, he would protect her. So if I acted out, then, you know, so I ran away. Just it was it was an instinctive thing. The second home I was in was a really complex place. So the husband and wife, uh, the husband was uh, somewhat, somewhat stable, had a, had a stable state job. I think he was a mailman. 
but uh, uh, he was really uh, at the whim of his wife, who was the foster mother. There were there was uh, other foster kids there. There was an adopted son there. There were um, biological children that were in the family. There were uh, the, the, the complexity gets even deeper. There was there was integration from within and outside that family with local crime. So it just became so complex. So sure, I could have thrived there, except I wasn't a part of that family. So as I came as I came in, I was manipulated. How much money do you have? And so as long as I could get money from my parents and bring it into the house and I could be a partaking of that. Uh, but the two things that were, I think, the real breakers for me, of course, is uh, you're right. It wasn't a real sharing experience. But everything I did share, of course, I was just made to share more. Uh, but the foster mother was abusive and would hit me with, you know, would hit me, would would kick me, would uh, hit me with anything that was in the room, you know, a curtain rod, anything. So that was daily or at least every couple of days. And that was that became very traumatic for me. Um, but there was also older kids in, in the in the um, in the foster home that would also beat me and abused me. And, you know, one was very, very large. Um, and he was, you know, like one of the football players at the high school. Uh, and, uh, he really hurt me pretty bad once. And so, you know, each time I ran away, it was almost different stages of it. And every time I got replaced with the family after I ran, well, it was worse because, you know, it was reflecting on them. Right. And so I ran away three times. So that's, those are some of the details. Sure. It's a great question though. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's coming from a place of, of lack of experience, you know, curiosity. So the third time you run away, where do you go? I go to the streets. Interestingly enough, and I just realized this the other day, I was thinking about it yesterday, I think, is um, I ended up on the same railroad tracks where I had that first six pack of beer, probably almost in the same area. And there was a fellow there who was drinking a quart of Jenny cream ale. He shared it with me. We had a few cigarettes. He lived above a bar and he took me in. And I lived above a bar. We didn't have a bathroom. We didn't have a shower. We just, it was just a room. But I, I, I spent my nights going out and stealing so I could fund our drinking. And I stayed there for a bit. And then eventually, uh, I, you know, I, I called my parents one day for money. And they came to pick me up. And they said, why don't you get in the car? And I said, no, just give me the money. And they eventually talked to me and they said, look, we'll give you the money. And I said, well, I'm not going back to that foster home. And they said, no, 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 we're not going to take you anywhere you don't want to go. You can do what you want, but please just just come with us. We want to introduce you to someone. And they did. They introduced me to their priest. His name was Father Ralph D. Pasquale. He's passed now. And Father Ralph was the Catholic priest at Immaculate Conception Church. He also had opened and was just getting ready to open a group home called Wait House, W-A-I-T-T. We're all in this together. I was the first person placed there as a child. Now, I could have done well there. I will be honest, as I look back, that was probably the most substantial amount of loving, compassionate, really good people help that I got. Jane McCarthy is another woman I mentioned by name. She passed this past year, sadly. She was my counselor there. Uh, she's the person over the years to come that when I was in trouble in jail, you know, I'd call her before I called my lawyer, before I called my family to bail me out. And she'd say, why are you calling me? And I said, I don't know. But I did know, you know, I needed just to have that one touchstone for me. But I was in that group home. And, you know, after the foster care, that was kind of a relief because there was some health there and some some wellness and some therapy and some counseling. But I was nowhere near capable of staying away from the drugs and alcohol. And that's what sent me back out on the streets. After that, they placed me in a detention center. They tried to get me to 
acquiesce and volunteer to go to a place called Bridge Center, which is a treatment center. But that was back in the 70s. And people, I went there and looked around. And the people walking around that were clients that were residents there, they had signs around their neck like, I steal, I'm a liar, I'm a, mm-hmm. you know, it was those days. Mm-hmm. And it was yeah, very, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I looked I was, at that. Th- they were still doing that when I went to treatment. You know, and I looked at that and I get it. I mean, there's pros and cons to everything, but I looked at that and I said, and I thought to my, I didn't know it was voluntary. And I'm sitting there going, oh my goodness, I'm, 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 <laughs> this is, this, I'm, I'm gone. This is, this is going to be tough. And then I'll never forget after they explained everything to me, they looked at me and said, So, Kevin, do you think you want to go here? Would you like to come here for some help? And it just, even through my drug-addled mind, I realized it's optional, Kevin. It's optional. And I said, no, I think I'm okay. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just, you know, but that was it. Uh, They put me in a detention center after that for evaluation. I didn't go to reform school. The detention center was the last, it was part of Vanderheiden Hall, which is associated with the reform school. They did let me go back to my adoptive family at that point, but I only lasted a few months there before I turned 16 and I was back on the streets. And this, the experience of living on the streets, why was that preferable to you? It wasn't. I was, of course, looking for drugs more than anything else and dealing drugs. As soon as I got put back into my uh, adoptive family, uh, there was no connection anymore to them. I was really estranged at that point. And of course, extraordinarily, unknowingly, very hostile and angry towards them because I had been permanently abandoned, I thought, in my, in my, in my system. I wouldn't say in my mind. My mind was not able to cope. But I did hit the streets for the drug dealing, for the for the usage, and I was down in Schenectady. And I will say this was the real, I think, big turning point because I was 15 and I was spending a lot of time downtown Schenectady. If you know where Schenectady is, it's right near Albany, New York, which is the capital. And there's a, a street down there called J Street and uh, a fella, uh, you know, that I knew from the street. I didn't know this at the time, but I'm guessing that now he he was a prostitute and I didn't know. But he met me on the street and said, what are you doing? And I said, nothing. He said, you want to get high? I said, I don't have anything. He said, come on with me. And we went down to J Street and some guys left, let us up into their apartment and we did get high and uh, they both uh, gang raped me, the uh, the two men that lived there. They were in their, I think their 30s at the time, maybe a little bit older, maybe their 40s. And I think that was the real turning point when you asked me, you know, what, why were the streets preferable? Well, because if I went back there every day, they still raped me, but I got high. I got high a lot there. So that was really, I think, what brought me to that place of understanding that it only mattered to get high. It only mattered to um, stay high and not staying high, not getting high. Um, That was death to me. That was, you know, that was the fear. Well, that was the fear. I mean, if I wasn't high, I felt like I was being raped. If I wasn't high, I felt like I was being abandoned. If I wasn't high, I had to feel everything, right? And I think that's a really key spot to stop here for a second, to recognize that all the drugs and alcohol I did, sure, caused mayhem, caused awful things to happen, but that's not why I did them. I didn't do them to cause mayhem. I didn't do them to bring myself to my knees and to bring my whole family because we know that this is a it's a family disease. It devastates everyone. I did it because there was so much pain and misery that without it, I had to feel that. And I had to feel that abandonment. I had to feel that sense of low worth or no worth. And I had to feel over and over again that I had been molested, that I had been a piece of meat. And after you get raped once, the second time, you know, it, it's just, it just, like you said, it's compounding. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, you, you require a numbness anyway. So the numbness, just the disassociation just becomes deeper. A couple things about that. 
how did you and how does one? So one of the things that I talked to a lot of uh, women about and was interesting because I've been in different treatment centers and they've talked to me about it differently, which was, you know, one of the things I did at a certain point was date the drug dealer because like, hello, you know this is a business decision. <laughs> you know what? If I'm going to date somebody, I might as well date this guy. We're spending enough time together and this makes sense, right? I mean, it's just like... Actually, ob- actually it was practical for goodness sake. It sakes. was practical, okay? So anyway, I mean, I, yeah, I'm not even going to defend it. But so I'm told, okay, well, that's prostitution. Maybe. But what I wonder is at what point... Do we consider, I mean, there were so many times in my using where where there were, it was clear to me that if I said no to this person, that this, this was going to happen anyway. And so I said yes in order for that not to happen, right? So it was my choice, right? I had a choice in it. And so it was clear to me, okay, you're, I'm going to get raped. So I might as well just go along with this so that it's not that. And I wonder if if I counted all the times that that happened in in my head if I registered those as rape which I I haven't you know what would that look like for me and and my question that I'm coming to is how do you decipher between I went there the first time I got high and this happened which I did not know was going to happen and the second time I went there I got high and I knew this was going to happen now I'm using I know I'm going there to get drugs and the payment is sex. Which one is rape and how 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 do we because I think a lot of people say, well, no, I I made this decision. And and then there are some camps that say, well, no, that's still rape, and other camps that say, well, no, that's prostitution. So just your your thoughts on on the delineation between those things, because I think where we park them, that was I was accosted or I chose to trade these things, I think where we park them changes our psyche a bit. I think you're right. And I was 15. There's no willing participation for a minor. When you complex, when you look at the complex trauma that led me there, it's even more impossible to put any sense of quote unquote responsibility as in you and I are responsible today. We can take responsibility for actions. At 15 years old, it's very difficult for even a 15-year-old with no trauma to make real healthy decisions. We make a lot of mistakes when we're young, but we are not, we are not expected at 15, 14, 13, 9, or even 16 in, in many states, 17, you know, up to a statutory age, to be responsible for the choices we make in lending ourselves uh, to a situation where we could get in a sexual situation, a sexual possibility of intercourse or any kind of any kind of touching or any kind of oral sex and all those things can be understood from various perspectives but when you talk about a minor that takes all those perspectives and puts them in a pretty neat bow for me when you combine when you combine that with the multiple traumas and the compounding traumas as we that's a great way to put it and that's a very healthy way to understand it it would be like asking an infant to make a good decision it's just impossible. Now, the other the other aspect to this, and I'll give you a quick little anecdote, and then I will move on to one other topic there, which is the I think the line we cross. I had my book written a couple of years ago or a year or so ago, and I let some people read it, and one of them was a social worker who also was part of the adoption triad, which means they're either a birth mother or an adoptee or an adoptive 
parent. And they were part of the adoption triad, so I wanted them to read it. And they were also a social worker who had done a lot of work with addiction and people who have had trauma. And they read the book and they came back to me and they said, wow, this was powerful. This was this. And I remember talking to them. I was on the phone in the parking lot at work and, and they said, I said, well, what'd you think of this? And they said, yeah, the adoption stuff was really clear. And I said, well, and said, but it was a lot of it was about the drug use and this, and I got that really clear, clear. And I said, yeah. And the third topic was the abuse. And she goes, oh yeah, when you were nine. And I just stopped and I just said, yeah, yeah. And I said, but that, uh, the other part when I was 15, she goes, oh yeah, that, oh yeah, that. And it's what you're speaking of now which is, this is a professional. This is someone who's actually written a book and is talking about, you know, these things. And I'm not saying that we didn't have a further conversation about that in which there was maybe a little bit of a reminder of that. But for that to be an, oh yeah, that, I could tell, or at least let's assume that there was a little bit of a wiggle room as to how that was defined. Maybe someone would, from a certain generation or just from a certain understanding would say, well, that, that seemed like it was just bad behavior. Okay. I think there is a line, though, that we cross between why we use drugs, why we behave in the way we do, whether it be going to give our bodies up for the drugs or stealing for the drugs. The whole point is to get the drugs, right? So whatever we're doing is to get them so we don't feel whatever we are feeling. And this is well-documented. This isn't me talking. Uh, There's a wonderful book called Never Enough by Judith uh, Grizel, I believe is her name. Anyone should read that. I'm going to read it 20 times. You know, I've got notes all over it in yellow stickies. It's great to understand addiction. She's got as much time sober as I do, but she's a neuroscientist who studies addiction. So she's kind of, you know, my peer and not. But the, the wonderful thing is that, you know, to understand there are just behaviors that addicts are very commonly understood to, to kind of inhabit a world that's very different than anything you can understand. But I think the line that we cross is the difference is why we're using them. For the longest time, it was, I have to use them no matter what. If I'm prostituting, I wouldn't even think about it that way. I'm getting drugs. If I'm on the street, does I'm not thinking, I'm getting drugs. That's all I need. But there was a line, and I would never be able to tell you what day, what year maybe even. No, honestly, or what circumstances. But the line crossed between, I need drugs because I don't want to feel things, and I need to continue what I'm doing because I don't belong here anymore. And it's called suicide. So I went from a survival mechanism, which was prostituting or stealing or whatever for drugs to, yes, I'm prostituting. Yes, I'm stealing. Yes. But the drugs, the lifestyle is simply so I can continue to really destroy myself. And I didn't see that while it was happening, but I think that's the line that many of us cross. And by the time... Suicide on the installment plan? Yeah, it's, you know... It certainly is a lifestyle of suicidal behavior. Most people can't argue with that. It's just the understanding that we can call it that as a observation of how people are acting. And that is really great to understand the behavior and and look at maybe we could do some behavior modification, right? Don't prostitute today and see how it goes. (laughs) Sorry, I never said that before. And I really really am glad we're having a good laugh. It's so, you know. I can't help it. I'm sorry. I'm I'm just, you know, I think I'm punchy after yesterday, but you get it. I think the important thing is to say, yeah, but what's under that? And then what's under that? And then what's under that? And it took me years of the day I stopped using drugs and alcohol and really literally stopped prostituting. I mean, you know, you you very quickly, you don't need the drugs and alcohol. What are you going to prostitute for, right? Uh, You know, things changed rather quickly and nothing got better. I mean, I was, it got worse. I was devastated. I was 
just so I, I was that's when I knew why I was doing all that. I recognized. And I've said it for years that I I really felt like I didn't deserve to exist when I really came through that fog after about five days. And then I spent about two days just mumbling, mumbling, you know. But I remember that. And now I've recalled it enough times to understand it wasn't just that I deserve, I didn't think I deserved to exist. It was even a little stronger than I, th- I thought I deserved to be annihilated. In other words, I deserve to never have existed, to be, you know, just a nuclear blast wiped me off, you know, just a puff of smoke left and then nothing. And that really is, of course, a dramatic way of speaking, but it's also very true. I recognize it today. If I, I'm sorry, Ashley, but, you know, you and I are doing great in this conversation, but if I have a drink right after this, all bets are off. Everything's, every. I, don't, I have no idea if I'll ever get sober again, and I have no idea if I'll even be here tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. I get that. And uh, I, I I love that you talk about it that way because I think we all compartmentalize things differently. And so it's important to break through that and, and be given the opportunity to think about our, our life, our traumas, our experiences differently. Even if we decide they don't fit, it's I think that it, the opportunity to think about them differently is important because you might find something fits better than than you want it to. Before we move on from this topic, one other thing I want to talk, touch on, which is that the people, the men that I know who were abused by men who also who also prostituted, they tend to have struggles with sexuality, not in in that they think, well, this happened to me, therefore there must be some with something, you know, I must be gay or you know, something along those lines because they don't, because there's, it's confusing. And then to move forward through to prostitution, just that, that sense of, you have no sense of self, particularly if you are a straight man. And how did you work through some of, there must've been some of that stuff come up for you, getting sober and reacclimating and learning to be in relationships going forward. Great. I'm glad you asked that because we're really hitting into recovery now, which is fun. And also very, very, you have to have a lot of energy to to get through a day in recovery. And so there's a lot of work to do. And I'll answer that in a couple of different ways. Yeah, at first it was extraordinarily just, I would say, eye-opening to see, you know, um, uh, that I was actually a sexual being instead of a piece of meat. So the very first thing wasn't even to uh, delve into sexuality. I mean, I didn't have the language for that. I was, again, a high school dropout who couldn't spell his last name, literally. And understanding even words like sexuality or sexual preference right. or sexual identity, you know, that wasn't there. So and I, far beyond No, anything. no. And in 1986, when I got sober, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of energy in the, in the um, LGBTQ, you know, area. But th- th- we were in the middle of the AIDS epidemic. We were at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. So there was a lot that was happening that, sure, I could start to understand. But as far as a personal understanding, all I knew was that I could, and I, I don't want to get too picturesque here, but all I knew that my job was to stand in front of a mirror, you know, with my clothes off and not want to, you know, run away. I had to start to learn that my body was, you know, was beautiful. 
was healthy and was mine. So the most important thing was starting with that. And I remember, and I, I, I don't get too descriptive about this sometimes, but uh, I remember, you know, touching myself on the arm and looking at these parts of my body. I really had to reclaim before the sexuality, just the physicality. The, the piece that came next was, you know, an understanding mentally. And I think that's what you're talking about is kind of grappling with, well, what is this? And that was horrendous because even though I was sober, I was still, I didn't understand that I'd been abused. I didn't. And I was still acting in many ways at times uh, in ways that I wasn't very, wasn't health, healthy and I wasn't very happy with. In other words, if I was maybe dating someone and then I might be giving a ride home to someone and they might want to, you know, engage with me, I just did it. I didn't have a, I didn't have a switch that went on or off. It was just this. So that was really the biggest struggle for me. But once I really, and I will tell you, I was about two years sober and I was in therapy when I was, my therapist said to me, I said, what can I help you with? And I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to kill myself in a few minutes. Cause why? And I said, well, because I'm acting like that. I can't even be loyal to someone. It's not my spiritual thing. I'm I'm in the program. I'm working the steps. I'm doing all this, but I, I can't stand myself. And I remember, you know, we, we, un, we, we kind of dug in a little bit and she asked me if I had been abused and I said, no, and then, <laughs> right. I just said, no, and right. then, but, but she planted the seed. Yeah. And then one day after the therapy, I was oh, on yeah, my you were driving. Ah, you know, that story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You heard that. And, and I realized I had been abused. And oh, tell I, the, t- sorry, tell the story. Tell the oh, story. no, 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 no. It's okay. Yes. I was driving, <laughs> I'm driving down the road on the way to my 12 step meeting. And here I am a road. I'm up driving down this road, been here a hundred times. I know the street right down the street from where I've raised. Uh, here comes that little S turn that I know so well. And there's the silo I used to play in when I was a kid. And oh, there's that house where I was abused. And what? Wait, what? Wow. And I just, now, of course, I didn't have the language to say that's the house where I was abused. I said, that's the house where I was in 4-H and that guy did this. And then, you know, I, it was really beautiful because I didn't drive off the road. And I, <laughs> I, I, I really, no, and I mean yeah. that, I mean that from a a very spiritual sense. Yeah, I, I was yeah. ready. I was ready for that. It was like the veil was lifted. The shade was lifted and I could see, but I was ready emotionally. I was ready spiritually. And so I went to the meeting and then I pondered it. And I kept thinking by the time I went to my therapist next week, I said, Val, can I ask you something? She's Jan. I said, when I was nine, I think, you know, I was doing this and this happened. I said, what, what was that? And she said, Kevin, y- you were molested. And I said, oh, uh, okay. And I said, when I was 15 and this happened, I said, what was that? Literally, this was the conversation. She said, Kevin, you were gang raped. I said, oh, okay. And I looked at her and I said, okay. And that was it. And she led me from there. And it was almost like a, well, what do we do now? Now, that was the beginning of, of course, a spiritual journey and a, and a mental, emotional, behavioral journey that I am so grateful for. I'm nowhere near that man anymore. And I don't even recognize, you know, that person that I used to be. But mostly, I'm really grateful that I've healed in a way where I can talk about this openly without shame. And that's the word I want to throw out here right now. I have no shame over that. I don't, shame is, you know, who I am. 
right? What I did, I, you know, at then, at that point, you know, I felt very bad about, um, but I recognized that I was abused. I wasn't, you know, the one who was making those decisions and all the behaviors that came from that, I needed to take responsibility for them. And if I don't take responsibility for those today, I sure should feel guilty as hell and I should do something about it, but I'm still not going to feel ashamed because I'm a human being and I'm going to be faulty. I'm going to make mistakes and it's going to be a struggle because that that journey of healing from from that behavior and that understanding of being a piece of me was really difficult. I will just answer your question, though. I do have an, uh, an understanding and I, I don't really bring it out too often, but that bisexuality would be more along the line of what I would understand would be probably possible for me. I've been married now for 25 years, and I've been uh, with the same woman for t- uh, 28 years. We have two children. Uh, but I have had intimate relationships with with healthy men at, at certain times during college and after that in recovery. So I understand there's a real sense of healthiness around my understanding of my sexuality. It also doesn't define me. Yeah. Well, I think I, I, I'm glad you talked about it because I think it's what I see is a deep confusion often about, okay, well, you know, I, I'm going through all this. Okay. It wasn't my fault. Okay. 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 But, but what if, what if I didn't hate it? What if, uh, you know, what if this, what if that? And, and so that, that would be a deep confusion and has been. So I think it's important to touch on for the people who are wondering about that. May I make a mention here? And I think it's important. Um, I think that the communities that I've built and the communities that I've um, been entered into and been welcomed into over the years have been the key. And I will say the one key was my, my sponsor. When I asked him to be my sponsor, he actually said to me, I'll have to think about it. And you know, I called him back a few days later. He said, yeah, okay, I think I'll do it. And I said, okay. And I got together and we had our first meeting. And after that meeting, I, I, he said, okay, we'll get together next week and talk some more. And I said, okay. And I said, I turned at the door and I said, Richard, I said, you told me you had to think about it. He said, yeah. And I said, why? And he said, well, Kevin, I'm a gay man. I said, yeah, I know. And he says, well, you're a very handsome young man. And uh, he says, and I, of course, I understand that. And I noticed that. He said, I had to make sure my intentions were right. And I kind of backed up a little bit and I said, well, are they? <laughs> and <laughs> I know you'd love that. And he, look, and he looked at me and if you knew my sponsor, you'd see his face right now. And he said, he'd said it with deathly seriousness. He said, oh no, that'll never happen. That's never going to happen. He had taken the time. Now, the reason I mentioned that is because, you know, that was the first man in the world, in the world that I gave that, gave that trust to. And it was hard won and it was slow and it was painful. And that has been 34 years that I've never been hurt by that person. And I needed to have that community. I needed to have healthy relationships, not just to compare them or, you know, kind of juxtapose them with what I had experienced, but to build on and to recognize that, yeah, somebody could actually spend the time to decide that they're not going to take advantage of me. They're going to want to have a loving spiritual relationship. That's really pretty incredible. It's those communities that I I, I, I relish now and I, I just am so grateful for. It's it's what's incredible to me is the ability, awareness to say, I need to check myself, right? To to honor 
that we are human, honor that that sometimes aren't that sometimes our intentions, you know, make their way into things. And then and to say, let me make sure that my intentions, as opposed to assuming my intentions are always good. And I that's something we practice in program. Right. And let me just really be clear about this. The importance of him doing that was twofold. Number one, he did it, which is what you're reflecting on. Number two, he disclosed that to me. He could have easily said, just had to think about it. I'm open fine now. He modeled that for me. That's that's what we're doing. You and I are doing that right now. We're not just having some, you know, kind of, we're not the wisest people in the world, folks. If you're listening, trust me, Ashley and I are still figuring out what, what we should have for breakfast. But at this point, at this point, we have something, some experience, some strength, some hope. And if we keep it to ourselves, that's a crime. That's, that's, we got to keep what we have by giving it away. Truth. And that's the beauty of the, you know, these conversations are so important because what I, what I, you know, with the podcast and with all podcasts be in, when you're in recovery and you know, you're in recovery 35 years, when you're in recovery, you have these conversations with people all the time. I mean, we have, this is not a conversation that, that we wouldn't have. It's just, we wouldn't record it. And I have, I mean, I, I've sat in groups with friends who are in the program for hours, sleepovers, whatever, and talked about this stuff in depth. And it's how we talk to each other and and share our stories with one another. And it's something that happens behind closed doors. And the beauty of being able to say, the beauty of podcasting is that people can listen to it without anybody knowing. They can you know listen to it whenever they want. And they can listen to conversations that they would never otherwise hear and hear people say things that they thought you could never say. It's important for us to recognize that. Now, I know that for me, I recognize that someone listening to this will most likely either be someone that's in recovery or is thinking about recovery. It could be even a family member. And that's where I really get encouraged that if you're a family member, I'm so grateful you're here right now and that you've stuck with us through this conversation because there's just so much to grapple with. And we get that. And I, by the way, am in the 12-step world of family members. So, you know, um, the, the other uh, sister programs, as we call it. And, uh, Adult children. Yeah, I, I try not to label things just out of the um, of the traditions of you know not identifying publicly. Um, but like like let's just say let's just say for for instance, there's I'm not claiming yeah, my identity, but adoption. Right. Well, yeah. Let's say there's adoption anonymous, and then okay. there's then yeah. then there's adopt anon, right? So, you know, Adopt-a-non. I'm just okay. kidding with those, but I'm just oh, saying, okay. you know, there's there's Alcoholics Anonymous, and there's Al Anon, which is for the family members, right. and so there's twelve step programs for all these things. Uh, and I'm is not claiming. Adoption is there an adoption program? It's really wonderful you ask. There's no 12-step program specifically that I know of, although I do attend a 12-step uh, centric group that is uh, for recovery and folks who are adopted. And it's it's very, it, it, you know, it's a private face group, uh, Facebook group that also meets on Zoom. And it's, uh, you know, we're, we're small, but we're very effective. And I think that that's been really that's cool. helpful. Yeah, but there's an enormous and wonderfully powerful and beneficial community for adoptees or the adoptive try the adoptive yeah, the uh, triad the, the triad that is really really beneficial you have to pick and choose of course but there's a lot of groups i belong to on facebook and otherwise there's search angels out there there's birth mothers and adoptees and a lot of people that just really are healthy and growing and 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 you know evolving and i think that's a great place 
Yeah, the um, the one that I'm most interested in lately is adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families. So I think that that's something a lot of people don't know about ACA. And, and I, uh, over the past few years, have really seen changes in people who've been able to engage in that program. And the fact that they mention dysfunctional families, like if their parent wasn't specifically an alcoholic, but they were in a dysfunctional family, that there's a program for that and that there are personality traits, behaviors, things that come out of that that are well-documented and common and and that people are recovering from. Right. And I'm grateful you brought that up. And I know in early recovery for me, I did uh, attend some, they're called ACOA meetings and things like that, or uh, there was a few other ones that I attended. And it was difficult in some ways because here I was an only child with two parents who didn't drink. Right. Right. And I'm sitting in this meeting and I'm like, what? I mean, they drank, but not alcoholically. And I'm sitting in this meeting and I I identify with all the feelings. I identify with all the stories. I identify with all the dysfunction, with all of the abandonment, with all the codependency. I learned so much there. And then, you know, for me, I guess, you know, even retrospect, it would have been easy for me to say, yeah, but I was in these uh, foster homes that there was the abuse. Right, 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 right. But interestingly enough, and I'll disclose this here, even though I don't talk too much about the search and, you know, discovery about my biological family, but in my DNA, there is so much addiction. Yeah. And there's, you know, I, I wasn't raised in that family. And yet, I mean, I'm not a doctor and I'm not a DNA specialist. And people, of course, you know, think about that a lot these days. But when I found out that there was a biological history of that, I almost felt reborn in the 12 steps. I almost felt reborn in the program. <laughs> like, I got a story to tell now. You know, oh, I can yeah. tell that. You know, because we feel kind of like a lot of times in the in the program or in meeting, we got all these people that tell these stories. Yeah, my uncle, my, my brother, yeah, my yeah. sister. And I had like, yeah, everybody was cool. You know, yeah, and, my parents didn't drink. Yeah, yeah, weird. Yeah, like what's wrong with me? Right, uh, black, black sheep, black yeah. sheep of the family. B- back to the 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 main topic, which is what's wrong with me? Right, right. It's me. It's me. Yeah. I'm broke. It's, I'm broken. I'm right. broken. Yeah, incredible. I mean, all of it is just. I bet the process for writing the book was incredibly healing. How long did it take you to write that? It took me thirteen years. Yeah. Yeah, it uh, it was at the in 2005, I began a search for my biological family, uh, mostly looking for my mother for a picture. That's all I ever wanted was just a picture. It's all I thought yeah. I deserved. Right. Remember? Deserved. Right, right, right. And I had a I had a woman who was uh, I was working for in New York City. And when I was leaving that job to come upstate, she took me out for lunch and she disclosed to me because I always talked. I talked, you know, pretty openly about being adopted here and there. And she was a birth mother who had given up her twins. And we had a wonderful conversation. And she encouraged me if I wanted that she would help me. And over the next two years, from 2005 to 2007, I searched. And my search was completed in 2007. Uh, And that's what the book was based on. It's called Dear Stephen Michael's Mother. And people encouraged me to write it. So I started writing. And of course, you know, you piddle about and you write paragraphs and stories and you write pieces. And I recognized very quickly on that I couldn't write one story. So the book parallels two stories. It's the two-year search, but it alternates between that story and what happened after she put me up for adoption. So everything we're talking about here, all this, it goes back and forth between those two stories. So it's a mystery for both. And if someone's not listening to this podcast, they may open the book, or even if you have listened to it, you'll see the unraveling of this this journey. 
uh, which is a mystery. How do you find the biological root? And also, how do you get through the addiction to recovery? How do you get through the abuse to recovery? And it ends, of course, with you know the end of the search that that uh, will be disclosed in the book. I, I try not to disclose it verbally here, and that's a wonder. It's a, it's a wonder. I'm I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm just saying it's a wonderment. And also, of course, it ends with uh, the end of my addiction and the entry into recovery. Love that. Love that. Dear Stephen Michael's mother. And Stephen Michael, who is Stephen Michael? You're talking to him right now. Was that your original name? Remember I told you my mother baptized me? Yep. Yep. Yeah. I found the baptismal. Got it. So on the cover of the book, you'll see a picture of a baby. That's me. Yeah. That's me. That's Kevin Barhey. And that's Stephen Michael. And you'll also see two pictures, two beautiful, beautiful pictures of two young women. Those are my mothers. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. That's incredible. Well, thank you so, so much for being here. What is something that you uh, wish you had known when you started your recovery journey? Yeah, it's really important that you ask that. And I'm so grateful. You have 15 years right now, right? Yes. Coming up. And I wish I'd known that uh, some of the very simple things that we do in the beginning are the keys, whether you have 15 or 35 years. And I had to learn that the hard way. I have not picked up a drink since January 1, 1986, or a drug. But when I had about 12 years, I was a high school dropout who couldn't spell his last name, who had now gained a bachelor's degree a corner office in Manhattan and a six-figure job, a wife and two children, a leader in my church, and a little bit of a pillar in the community, so to speak. And I got really busy, Ashley. I got really busy. And over a period of four years, and it was as insidious as we all hear, I slowly, it was my undoing, I slowly started to not do the things that I had done in the beginning. Uh, in the beginning, I would go to meetings on a regular basis. Oh my gosh, probably two, three a day if I could. In the beginning, I would I had a sponsor and I talked to him all the time. And in the beginning, I, I worked the steps with that sponsor. I did service. I helped. I did whatever I could. And I grew to have a relationship with a power greater than myself. By the time I had about 16 years um, dry at this point, I had gone through almost a four-year dry drunk without knowing it. And it was um, 2001. July 2nd, 2001, I got fired from that corner office job. I hadn't gone to a meeting in over a year. And the one meeting I went to the year before was I went late and left early. And it just faded. And by the time I got fired from that job, I had a beautiful wife and two beautiful kids in Park Slope, Prospect Heights, Brooklyn, this wonderful apartment. And at three in the morning, I found myself, they were sleeping in the other room and I was in the kitchen with a straight razor trying to cut my arm open. I was suicidal and I just, again, without one drop in my system. And what I learned, because that was, you know, July, I was fired. So I had July and August and I called my sponsor and he said something very magical. I'm going to, you got to write this down. It's a big one. Ready? You might want to go to a meeting tomorrow. (laughs) I know. I know. And so I picked up the basics again. And over the summer, I did some real soul searching and things got better. You know, they do. I got me like, wow, thank goodness I survived that one. It's They get better and you don't even understand why, even though you know why, but you still don't get it. It doesn't make sense. How, how, how you walking into the room, it could just be better. Yeah. And, and you're right. And the summer was when I spent an enormous amount of time in a place called Prospect Park. There's a botanical garden and I went to the botanical gardens every day because I had no job and I had a little severance package. So I said, you know, honey, to my wife, I said, I need to figure this out. And I went to meetings and I started doing things. And over the summer, I realized there were things that I, 
that I was doing in the beginning, that I stopped doing, and that I was now doing. And that was just like the little process of elimination. Right, right. Right. And there were right. fi- there were five things. And I will just say them because they were the yeah. five, they're the oh, five, yeah. they're the five pillars of Hit my us life. With it. No, it's real simple. I just listed them. I go to meetings on a regular basis. It's not negotiable. I go to at least two meetings a week. I have a sponsor and I keep in touch with that sponsor. I communicate with that sponsor on a regular basis. That's the second pillar of my of my life. I work the 12 steps. I don't mess around. I don't think I did them once and I'm done. So I focus on the growth and the patterns that I've learned working with my sponsor. And the fourth pillar is that I do exactly what I'm doing right now, but I do it a lot one-on-one and I give away, right? I work with other people. I do service and service is the fourth pillar. And the fifth one is I have a relationship with a power greater than myself. And the word there the higher power words are great. I love saying that out loud. I try to treat it with a light touch with anyone I talk to. But the real key word in that sentence is relationship, relationship. I have a relationship with you now, and I've only spent a little bit over an hour. I want a relationship with my higher power that's maybe a little bit more fruitful than this, eh? And how wonderful if I could spend an hour with my higher power. And that's day in and day out. I meditate. I do things like that. But those five things are the pillars that make my foundation strong. And I just want to explain why I have five. They're the only ones that I could identify. But then I realized that I'm never going to do all five perfectly. But if I maybe don't catch a meeting this week, maybe I only go to one, not two. Well, that's one pillar that's a little little weak or a little soft, but I still got four, right? And what I recognized was as I went into that dry drunk, it wasn't all five went away. I faded on my higher power. I faded on the service. I faded on the on the steps. And I wasn't even able to talk to my sponsor after a while because what do you talk to him about? And then eventually, how could I go to a meeting? I don't even know who these people are anymore. And the less you go to these meetings, the less you do these things, the harder it is to come back because you feel like an alien. And, and you also forget why you even needed it in the first place. Like you, you don't, for, it's the weirdest thing I've ever experienced. And like, I'm in distress, blah, blah, blah. I go to the meeting. I'm like, oh, right. Oh, yeah. Oh, 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 yeah. I've only been doing this for 15 years. And, you know, every time I'm, why am I still surprised? I, I think that's wonderful. The word surprise. I, why am I surprised? And I'm, I'm not, I think you and I are saying it out loud. I'm not surprised anymore. I am grateful. And I, I use those five pillars as pure and simply non-negotiables. They are not negotiable in my life. And that's hard. That's really a yeah, lot. It that's is a, hard. It's a lot. I'm not saying this is easy and I'm not saying even two, but I don't care if you got five pillars or two or 20. I don't care what your plan of attack is there or what your strategy is. The point is to have something to hold up the foundation because if the foundation is on something weak, it, you know, you're going to be really, that'll be the surprise when the bottom drops out. And I wish I had known that. I wish I didn't have to learn it the hard way, but I think it's really beneficial to share in a group like this because in a, in a, in a talk like this, uh, I only share like really once a year at maybe my celebration or something. I always make this a point to share this because people think when you say I've got 35 years that it's been, you know, an uphill thing and, you know, yeah. it's gotten better. Yeah, right. I'm like, <laughs> you know, most of the most time I got to say, you know, on any given day, I don't even have any idea how I got here, but I yep. do. I do. And those are the five pillars that I think, you know, when I got 30 years and I'll wrap up with this, when I got 30 years, it was daunting. I thought, oh my God, I never thought I'd be alive this long. And then I thought, wait a minute, when I was 30 years sober, I was 53 years old. And I realized, Kevin, you could get another 30 if you live. 
And I might. And then I had to ask the question, and I really did. I really sat with it around my anniversary, and I said, well, what do you want to do for the next 30 years? And you know what the answer was, right? Same thing I've been doing for the last 30. That's what I'll I'll, I'll end with that. I love it. Kevin, you are amazing. Your story is incredible. It is so inspiring and such a a blueprint for people who are struggling um, with adoption, abuse, addiction. I mean, there's just so much in there, so much fertile, you know, to draw on. I, I just, I absolutely love your story and and tell us where we can, the name of your book, where we can find it, where we can find you. Sure. The book is Dear Stephen Michael's Mother, and it's on Amazon. And you can find it in a um, in Prime. If you have a Prime membership, you can read it. It's also an ebook right now in a soft cover. And I'm going to, the first time I've said this out loud, December 1 will be the audiobook. And that will all be Ooh. findable on Amazon. Just if you can remember, Dear Stephen Michael's Mother. My name is Kevin Barhe, and I'm sure you'll put some of that information in there. The only other thing I want to mention is a great place to find me is, of course, a lot of social media, but you. YouTube. There's a YouTube channel that you can find me. And even if you just go to YouTube and type in Dear Stephen Michael's Mother, you'll probably find me in a heartbeat. So those are the two places where I really live. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for your time, Ashley. This podcast is sponsored by LionRock.life. LionRock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information, and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meeting schedule and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.